This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Tuesday, January 30th, 2024 edition. And we have a special surprise for you all. It's Tuesday, but that means Luke is here, not, not usually with us on a Tuesday, but we get a, a special surprise appearance. Thanks for being here, Luke. Hopefully, it's a good surprise for our listeners and not a bad surprise. Yes, I think it is. See, I, I, I've, I've had a lot of good feedback, so I don't think you have to worry about that. Now, uh, we're here to help you become a better investor and help you navigate this changing market environment and invest for the future, not look at just what happened last year. The past is the past. And we're here to give you a assessment of the current economic and market environment, as well as some actionable material that you can take back with you to make better decisions with your money. And we mainly do this by answering your finance and investment questions, but we also have our topics as well. And I actually really like our topics today, Luke. I think there there's a lot to unpack and and uh, a lot for listeners to um, integrate into their decision-making process. Now, our, uh, we're going to run down the market performance for today, as well as the show topics that we're going to hit on. But as always, we're going to hit our first caller question now. Hey, guys. I love the show. I got a quick question about 401k investing. My company offers a pre-tax allocation that I can invest in. I know what the difference is between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA, but could you tell me what the difference is between a pre-tax contribution versus a Roth IRA? Thanks. A pre-tax is just simply a traditional 401k, right? You're, you're not paying tax on that, pre-tax. A Roth contribution or Roth investments are post-tax, meaning you've paid the tax on that and you don't have to pay anything into the future. It's that simple. I think sometimes you get uh, people get all fancy with the language, but it's that simple. Pre-tax is traditional IRA 401k. Post-tax is Roth IRA 401k. Pretty simple. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 40 minutes. And our main focus point is in regards to the Fed's favorite inflation gauge. Everyone talks about CPI, Luke, but we know the PCE personal consumption expenditures price index is most important. That came out on Friday. So we're going to look at that and what that might mean for a potential Fed rate cut in the future and why the PC index is mostly followed by the Fed. We also have other topics on the docket. Like I said, I really like them. Number one is the SOM indicator. SOM, is that, how would you pronounce that? Would you say it's SOM, S-A-H-M? It is SOM, yes. SOM, there we go. The SOM rule, not the indicator, SOM rule. 
So we're going to look at that and what it basically is an indicator for a recession. And we're going to look at where we are today. Also, EV demand is taking a hit. And it's not just the Teslas of the world. It is really across the board and not just domestic. It is foreign as well. A lot of foreign companies are reporting pretty soft demand in the EV market. So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, tomorrow is the Fed announcement. But almost equally as important, and I would argue even more important of an announcement, is from the Treasury. And that is in regards to the quarterly refunding announcement. There was the size of the amount of borrowing the government will be doing over the first and second quarter. That was announced yesterday. But how they're going to do it and those plans are going to be released tomorrow. So we're going to dig into that. I also have a fresh perspective ready to share in regards to the labor market and classifications of different employees and how that relates to the gig economy overall. Now let's take a look at the market today, Luke. It was it was kind of a, a mixed day, if I remember correctly. Yeah, mixed day, large cap value up 0.45%, small cap growth down 0.91%. And that was kind of a hint at what you were going to see after hours. And you had Google and Microsoft report earnings. Microsoft looks mixed after hours, uh, but Google is down 5 6% or so. Uh, who else? There was another oh, AMD, I think was down after hours as well. So, uh, certainly the news for today's market was more of what happened after hours during the earnings season, as opposed to the, the intraday. What did you see? Yeah, no, there's big reports out of Microsoft alphabet. Like you mentioned, Wells Fargo, PayPal announced it was laying off about 10% of its workforce and keeping in mind, this is in the wake of that big announcement a couple weeks ago where they said they were going to shock the world and it was just, um, boilerplate AI tool integration and, and mm-hmm. PayPal stock dumped as well. But I think most eyes are, are like you mentioned, looking forward to uh, the Fed meeting uh, tomorrow. Um, I saw that Jolts, the Jolts report came in, um, as well as consumer confidence, which pointed to a still strong labor market. So on the heels of that and, and the PCE index, it'll be interesting to note if the Fed starts to soften its language around. Because keep in mind, you know, in the recent past, they were talking about the possibility of, of an additional hike, which certainly nobody believed they were serious about. But still including it in the language um, leaves a slightly hawkish tone. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they change their their narrative um, with the still strong labor market uh, paired with easing of inflation. And another news event after hours was not necessarily earnings, but a judge ruling against Elon Musk and his, wait for it, 55 billion. Yes, that is billion with a B, $55 billion pay package that was passed in 2018, Luke, was it? 2018, yes. And this yeah. is a judge who who has been tough in the past on, uh, let's say, exorbitant pay packages, keeping in mind at the time that was the largest pay package, may still be the largest pay package in public market history. Um, so well, not too and, much and of a surprise. Just wait until this latest pay package that he's asking for. It might even exceed it, right? It, well, you know, the, the reasoning from the judge from what I saw is that 
Uh, there didn't seem to be a good faith negotiation in the interest of shareholders, given the mm. makeup of the board of directors at Tesla uh, yeah. at the time. Um, so certainly given that reasoning, this may put some pause on whether or not they give it into his, into his demands to allow him to have 25% uh, of the company. Yeah, it's been pretty clear throughout the history of Tesla that the board answers to Elon as opposed to Elon answering to the board. Uh, and that's not just this instance, but many, many instances in the past. So not a shock here. And it'll be very interesting to see how that uh, that ultimately shakes out. Obviously, the, that's probably going to be appealed and, and more litigation to come from that. But Tesla stock is down another about four or five percent after hours, which that could also be in sympathy to the other tech names uh, kind of falling out of bed here a little bit. So very interesting after hours. Uh, I said on Monday, or yeah, I guess that was yesterday, this is going to be a very eventful week. And it's certainly living up to that billing so far. And we'll get the ultimate moves tomorrow. Now we're going into a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888 chart Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. Would this be an opportune time to... To annuities. Everyone's situation is different. Get your thoughts on CRM, Salesforce. And so are their questions. And I was just calling for your assessment of Blackstone Incorporated. You can get your take on Chewy. Ticker symbol L-E-C-O. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan. Invest Talk perspective Justin Klein. You know, I'm okay paying a fair price for a very good business. Steve Peasley. It's a very well-run company. And now Luke Guerrero. Even to growth is significantly higher than its competitors are ready to provide their unbiased answers each podcast is unique and you set the agenda i will hey hi steve 24 7 rain or shine invest talk is made better by the power of you call 888-99-CHART Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey guys, this is R from Tucson. Hey, I'm calling in about Intel, I-N-T-C. Uh, wondering with this recent pullback, if it'd be a good time to buy, thinking about the tailwinds a company might have with this government investment in, in chip companies and manufacturing in the States here. Just wondering uh, what you think and where a good buying point would be, um, if not now. And I'll listen on the podcast. Appreciate all you do for us. Thanks. Well, we do own Intel for some managed accounts, and it's been in a solid uptrend since last, what was that, late February, it bottomed at about $25 per share. Now, even after this pullback from around 50 it is at about $53 per share. It was overbought going into this, these earnings, but, uh, you know, so it probably needed a bit of a refresher back to that 
100-day moving average, which is right around $41 per share. That's probably where the next big uh, support level will be. So not far from here. And the reason it had rallied, though, so dramatically over the past, let's call it year, is a turnaround in earnings. This year, earnings are expected to go up 34% and then another 60% next year. And this latest quarter, revenues were up 10% year over year, the first year over year increase in earnings in, in a couple of years. And earnings were up 260% year over year. So clearly the change in management is helping Intel overall, even though there's soft demand for PCs, for example, but Intel's business is uh, becoming more and more diversified. And as the caller said, Luke, that there's a lot of incentive for, or a lot of tax incentives now uh, for Intel to reinvest in domestic chip manufacturing. And that's going to uh, benefit their their cost structure in the long run. So I don't know. I, I think this pullback is a opportunity if you believe that they can reverse some of their market share losses that they uh, gave to uh, AMD uh, throughout the last uh, decade or so. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good take. It's price of book right now is uh, 1.8 relative to its five-year average of 2.4. But over the past couple of years, you've kind of seen, like you mentioned, the writing of the ship in terms of cash flow, in terms of profitability starting to take a turn as well. And that really shows in the bottom line earnings. But you know, I do agree with you that Intel has the ability to to take a turn and, and shift uh, and kind of take away some of the dominance that some of these other uh, tech names have had in the AI space. But, but like you mentioned, it takes some time. You know, it takes some time to turn a massive corporation like that. The perfect example is the big car companies trying to turn to EVs. Uh, you know, there are going to be some stumbles along the way, but it takes a time to move move a large ship like Intel. But like like you said, I do agree that maybe not exactly at this price. I'd maybe try and wait to see uh, where where the price discovery phase goes here after this most recent pullback. But I'd certainly keep this on my on my watch list moving forward. And. To, to me, Luca, this is actually uh, uh, what Boeing should take notice of. This rebound in the stock, in the price of Intel. Um, you know, Intel it, it for for a number of years, it it hired a, the, the former CFO as a CEO, and they look at the lens of uh, the business through finances as opposed to innovating. And in a product business, innovation and quality is should be top of mind. Um, and luckily for Intel, they've, they've gotten rid of that C that former CFO and they have a new CEO that used to be the CTO and focus, focusing more on the technology side. Boeing still is stuck with those kind of, with those, uh, that leadership that, uh, kind of have, has driven them into the, to the ground. So, um, it just goes to show you that you, a product business needs to focus on quality and innovation and not financialization. And when they can do that, uh, they can potentially uh, reclaim a lot of their market share and their glory days. So I think Intel is certainly on the right path, uh, certainly risky that th things can change in the technology world. Things change all the time. Uh, but I like the, the tra trajectory that Intel is on at the moment. Now, as we go to a break, let me remind you to check out our new InvestTalk Classroom series, episode 16, titled The Residential Housing Market. Luke and I break down the current dynamics and help you understand how to think about your lifestyle goals when selecting a home. Just go over to YouTube and search InvestStock Classroom. Now, the phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART.
Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. How they get there and when they get there, that depends on many variables. The more you learn about how the market works, the better your chances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now, our main focus point today concerns the Fed's favorite inflation gauge, and that is the Personal Consumption, Consumption Expenditures Price Index that was announced on Friday for the month of December. So it's a bit lagging here, Luke. But what it showed was a 0.2% increase month over month and a 2.9% increase year over year. And if you actually look at this on more on a six-month annualized basis, which the Fed did talk about, it's sub-2%. So this is the lowest level, 12-month rate uh, level since March 2021. And it certainly gives the Fed a lot more potential ammunition to start cutting rates later this year, which the market is obviously priced in uh, in a big way. Um, do you think that this will continue to ebb as we go throughout the year? It's certainly a possibility. I think that this coupled with the strong labor market, though, and uh, continuing of capital expenditures by businesses may actually give the Fed reason to not cut as quickly as some people perceive that they will. I think that uh, generally people have recency bias in thinking, well, if the Fed raised rates so quickly, then I imagine the campaign to cut them will be just as quick. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's probably more likely that they get down to the terminal rate of 2 to 3% over a course of years rather than what the market expected, remember, just several months ago, 150 basis points of cuts within 2024, which seems a little far-fetched with me. Because what this is showing me is, yes, they're doing a good job in terms of beating inflation, but the stickiest part of getting down to that 2% target is now, right? Especially yeah. with a strong labor market, it's going to be more difficult with wages rising uh, and, and that strength uh, in the private markets and, and to get inflation down to that 2% target. So I think they're going to probably be a little bit more cautious than the market expects. Yeah, you have to remember that the Fed, while it has been talking a lot about inflation recently, it can easily focus more on the growth side of the market uh, or the economy. Uh, and unless that growth falters, right? If, if the inflation rate is near the target, which on a six month annualized basis, that that's true, it's kind of right at its target. Um, then now they focus on growth and growth is fine. No reason to cut rates. Uh, certainly not growing gangbusters, but that three point, what was it? 3.3 in the fourth quarter, 3.1% annualized GDP growth uh, for the full year 2023. So clearly, you know, we're not in the recession for them to be super aggressive. Um, but I do think that inflation will continue to uh, ebb throughout this year, at least the first half of this year, uh, because what you're getting is that flow through to from from M2 growth. And I talk about this a lot because it's very important to understand. And uh, if you look at a chart, M2 growth peaked out in January of 2021. So it took off basically in March of 2020 when all the COVID stimulus packages were put out there and, and the Fed was easing dramatically, you know, putting rates at zero and the whole world was shut down, but the monetary and fiscal spigots were, were turning on big time. And you actually peaked out in year over year M2 growth at 25.73% in January of 2021. And that the, the, the core PCE price index 
peaked out in February of 2022. So a little over a year. So between a year and, and 18 months after um, that peak, it, it's kind of when inflation peaked out. Um, it, it, when I'm talking about M2 growth. And if you look back about a year or so from where we are today, year to 18 months, 18 months ago, you were at, let's see, about 5% year over year M2 growth. A year ago, in December, we were actually negative, negative uh, M2 growth, slightly negative, 0.89%. So what it's showing you is that you're still in this period of decelerating inflation. Now, once you get out to the middle of the year, so the, the, the lowest point in year-over-year M2 growth was in March of 2023, or sorry, April of 2023, last year. That was at negative 4.5%. And actually, that M2 growth has slowly gotten a little bit higher. It's still in negative territory at negative 2.3%, but it's gotten slowly you know, less negative throughout uh, since, since April of last year. So my point here is that inflation should ebb through to be middle part of this year, roughly. And then that's when you get the stickiness and potentially an increase uh, in inflation in the back half. And that'll be interesting going into the into the uh, election to see how much uh, that impacts their policy and thus market trends. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that will be uh, something to watch. Uh, near term, I don't think there's any issue. But as we get in the back half, that will be uh, something I'll be keeping an eye on, that's for sure. Well, on the next Invest Talk, we'll look into this question. Can a taxable account beat a 401k? Investment quality and expenses, as well as tax costs, are big swing factors. That story for us to discuss tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Invest Talk is here to help. And when you download the free Invest Talk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open 888 99 Chart. Hey, Justin. 
I saw the movie Dumb Money, and uh, it was a very good movie. Filthy, filthy uh, rap music in there. Didn't like that part of it, but the movie was well done. Curious if you saw it. Would you like to comment? Maybe educate some of us that saw that movie and wonder, hey, did we miss that on a great chance? Or, you know, just pretty much the whole fundamentals of how that thing played out. It was interesting. I never got in there. Really like the show. We're praying for Steve. I hope he gets better. Guys are doing a great job. I appreciate everything. Thank you. First, thank you for your kind words uh, regarding Steve. I think we're all we're all praying that he gets better and, and back to us soon. But I personally, Justin, I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen. I have not the movie Dumb Money, but I certainly lived through uh, the events. Being that I worked at a pretty pretty large uh, fund at the time of the Wall Street bets uh, bid up of GameStop and that ensuing short squeeze. But I do think that the lesson from the entire course of events regarding GameStop, at least from my perspective, I think people tend to see it as an example of retail investors sticking it to the man, the man being being hedge funds. But at the end of the day, the people that made the real dumb money was Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Plenty of the shares outstanding of GameStop were held by large firms. And a lot of them, uh, I know, sold at the top. And so the lesson that I try and tell investors and, and clients and anybody who asked about this at my old job and, and at, at KPP is that if you hear about something in the news or you hear about something on Wall Street bets, chances are it's too late to get in. Because at the end of the day, yes, Melvin Capital folded, I believe, the hedge fund that was really short squeezed out of existence. But the people that were left holding the bag, so to speak, were retail investors, ones that were promised riches. Because at the end of the day, most people don't get into investing to stick it to the man and break the system. Most people get in to try and make a better life for themselves. And those retail investors that were left holding the bag, GameStop and some still are, sold a bill of goods are worse off for it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, if you look at the chart, it started back in, what was it, September timeframe is when it started to move of 2020. And it peaked out in January, late January of 2021. So you're talking about a four or five month period here where you know it had a lot of volatility and then you had that big surge higher peaked at, at peaked out at a high, what was the high here? $120 and 75 cents. And ever since then, it's been trending lower, making a series of lower highs and lower lows. And now it's trading at $14 and 55 cents. So it's as a trade as an interesting story, everything kind of lined up, everybody was terminally online, because they were not working, or at least they're working remotely. And, and that a lot they had plenty of time to browse Reddit boards and uh, the what was it Wall Street Bets board, right? Um, That's the one. And they and then the liquidity was flowing abundantly, both from fiscal and monetary. So there was a lot of things lining up to create a short squeeze, and that happened. And those that were able to ride that, you know, they they earned uh, a big return. But how many of them actually sold? probably not very many. Um, so, you know, it was probably the rarity of the people that got into the whole GameStop uh, thing that actually made big returns. Um, so, 
No, I don't think you missed out on a whole lot. Um, and it just goes to show you that kind of anything can happen in markets, especially when various factors line up and you need various factors to line up to have something as crazy as this was. Um, but it's all speculation. It has nothing to do with investing. Uh, and and that's the, the, the moral of the story here is in the trading world, anybody can get lucky. But when it comes to investing, this is not a way to pick names to buy and hold in your portfolio because obviously this is down nearly 90% from its all-time high. Anything to add? Uh, well, actually, one thing that it did do was kind of shine a light on payment for order flow. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know that, that's a practice where uh, a brokerage firm received compensation from a market maker for routing those trades there. It's how Robinhood is free for investors. Um, so that was good. That's a, a practice that has some some sketchy history. That was a benefit of it. But overall, you know, like I said before, a lot of people uh, were left in a way worse spot, uh, sold a bill of goods, promised riches, and, and invested their retirement. So always, always be careful. When something seems too good to be true, chances are it is. And I'll be very interested to see the data from like a Robin Hood uh, to see all the GameStop trades over the past, what are we now, three years or so, uh, three and a half years since that, and how many of them actually made money? What was the net profit of those trades? And I can almost guarantee you it's negative uh, because most people don't have the discipline to uh, take profits when things are going really well. They think that the tree will grow to the sky. And that's one, 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 yeah. One, uh, phrase that my grandfather always repeated and I've taken to this day, which is no tree grows to the sky. And you have to be cognizant of that. Usually when you feel the best about something, that's the time to take some chips out off the table and vice versa. When things look as dire as they possibly could be, that's when you want to uh, grin and bear it and probably buy a bit more. So uh, that was the end lesson, I think, from the GameStop fiasco. Now, our perspective today concerns the new Department of Labor classifications around the gig economy and the distinction between independent contractor and employee And obviously, this is very important in this new world where the projection is, Luke, 76.4 million people in 2024 will be classified as or working in the gig economy, excuse me. And that's up from 73.3 million freelancers estimated in 2023. So this isn't a small cohort cohort of the population. Uh, Remember, the the working age population in this country is about 200 million. So it's not the majority of people that are freelancers, 1099 employees, but it's, it's a lot. Um, so, you know, this really applies to the Lyfts, the Ubers, the DoorDashes. I know we had a call yesterday about Lyft, right? Uh, and the big question is, what is this rule? How's this rule going to evolve? I know, was it here in California, they created a new classification of worker that- It was, that was, of, that was Prop Prop 22 that was bankrolled by, by the rideshare companies, I believe. Yeah, and that passed, correct? It did, yes. Yeah, so uh, you think that this will probably be something that happens on the federal level, or do you think it's gonna be state by state? 
Uh, probably be state by state. I know it was tied up in court for a while. Uh, the yeah, it looks like the original ruling that parts of the bill was unconstitutional was in 2021. That got reversed on appeal, and now it's awaiting uh, review by the California Supreme Court. So it's an incredibly complex issue that probably the states will be will be the test cases for before they move anything federal but you know i would i would point out that certainly the past 12 months has been the season of labor there's been a lot of union victories uh, labor laborers have done really well so i think the climate in which this was passed uh, was a different was a different world compared mm-hmm. to the past 12 months so i don't know if if something like that would work federally well on a federal uh, federal side, the Supreme Court has offered guidelines that distinguishes employees from independent contractors. So they look at various things. So, so it's the is the service an integral part of the employer's business? And the greater the integration, it fav- favors more of an employee-employer relationship. I would argue that nothing is more integral to the business of Uber or Lyft or DoorDash than their actual drivers. Otherwise, their service <laughs> cannot be cannot be uh, executed on, right? Um, they also talk about the permanence of the relationship. More established relationships favor employee status. So that would probably argue against it because there are some Uber drivers that ride for Lyft and then do DoorDash and then do Uber, right? And, and so uh, there's probably not a lot of permanence there. Um, so that probably argues against it. Uh, then it's the amount of invested in equipment. So when a worker makes a significant investment in their equipment they use in working for someone else, they suggest an independent contractor relationship. So that, once again, is argues more towards independent contractor because Uber and Lyft are not supplying the cars. These drivers are supplying their main piece of equipment, which is the car. Uh, then the degree of control by the principal. So more control favors employee-employer status. This once again argues more of an independent contractor that these people can work as little or as much as they want. Uh, and then lastly, the amount of financial risk, more opportunity for profit or loss favors an independent contractor relationship. And I would argue that's against it because you know there's not a whole lot of upside, also not, not a whole lot of downside because you could just not work and you're not you're not losing money. Okay, so there's not a lot of financial risk there. So that's why I think it's a hard one to, to figure out uh, and probably needs a new set of classifications that is called something else, not an independent contractor. Maybe it is the gig economy bill that um, kind of threads the needle a little bit. Um, and I think that is probably in many ways the biggest risk to those Ubers and Lyfts and, and, and uh, DoorDashes of the world is that there will be some middle ground because right now they're pretty much independent contractors, which which uh, gets them off the hook for payroll tax and uh, in, in insurance and, and all these th- overhead costs that the average employer has to, uh, has to pay for. Um, so, you know, regulation is, uh, in my mind, Luke, an underappreciated aspect of investing when you're trying to game what that looks like, especially for big players in disrupting industries. Um, governments are often behind the curve in actually finding ways to uh, regulate these new industries. But over time, they do tend to kind of get their uh, hands dirty and, and make something happen there. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? How do you think that applies to the, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world? 
Well, redundancy for the sake of clarity, legislative and regulatory risk are things that investors cannot ignore. Yeah. Which is which is something that I think we mentioned yesterday when when talking about Lyft. And so when you have these companies like Uber, like Lyft, like any of the any of the food delivery companies, anything within the gig economy, it's a new frontier of a workforce. And the only thing you can be certain of, in my opinion, is that the current status quo and applying laws from the traditional labor force to this new type of economy isn't going to last. There will be changes. We don't know what they will be, but there will be changes and they will affect the bottom line of these companies. Yeah, and, and with, like I said, how lax the current rules are towards these companies, I think it can only go the other direction and, and cause them uh, more expenses going forward. Now let's go to Bill in Northern California who wants to look at Zoet, Zoetis, ZTS. Zoetis, you, yeah. Yeah, hey, you I own it or looking to buy it? Um, I'm looking to buy it. I had it uh, last year and I had bought on a dip like a year ago and, and uh, I had some shares that I had bought in a higher, smaller amount and I just thought when I got a few bucks above that last um, month and I just decided to sell the whole position. It was relatively small. I was waiting for a pullback to the 150s. It started getting down there and then it missed my price. I set it too low and and so I'm just like, ah, there'll be another pullback. But if, tell me how much you like this and what you know, what you imagine it might pull back to. It seems like a pretty healthy com company. Well, you're right that it is a healthy company when it comes to earnings and cash flow. But like all things, it's not always just about the the quality of the business, but the price you pay for the business. And currently, the price to pay for this business is pretty steep. Enterprise value is around $93 billion and a free cash flow of about $1.5 billion. So you're talking here about a 1.5% free cash flow yield. That is pretty low, especially for net. Now, I might say, okay, that makes sense because of growth, but the growth is now not that great. It was growing dramatically. But last quarter, revenues were up 7%, earnings up 12%. This year, earnings are expected to be up 11%, which is solid. But does it deserve a market multiple that's double what the market's paying? Uh, probably not. So I think that's the issue here. And it hasn't come even close to its all-time highs at the peak in uh, late 2021, early 20, uh, sorry, late, yeah, late 2021, early 2022. Um, and that bodes poorly, I think, from a technical perspective, and the fact that it's still trading at a very high multiple 10 times, almost 11 times price to sales ratio, that's extreme enterprise value to EBIT around 25 times, which is high uh, for most companies. Uh, and so uh, I actually think this is right for I think you'll get to 150 and probably lower. Uh, I wouldn't touch this probably Luke, below one 20 is, is probably where I would maybe start thinking about it, but it's got to go down a lot from here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I tend to agree. It's price of book is 17, which is incredibly Ooh. high relative to its peers. It's also only 3.7% off its 52 week high versus the subsector average. So it's run up quite a bit as well. To me, looking at the chart, looking at the fundamentals, looking at the relative valuations, it looks it looks right for a pullback to me. So I, d I don't think right now is the time to buy it. Just because you you missed your initial buy-in price doesn't mean it's not going to revisit it. Yeah. Uh, and I, like I said, it's got to be below 120 for me to even think about it. 
Now, on the next Invest Talk, we'll look into this question. Can a taxable account beat a 401k? Investment quality and expenses as well as tax costs are big swing factors, which we will dig into tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we're ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. No two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Kevin calling from Southern California. First off, I want to wish Steve all the best. I hope that his treatments are successful and he'll be um, back on the podcast soon. Recently, you guys were talking about 529s. I'm wondering if it's better to hold the 529s in my name and my wife's name versus holding them in my kids' names just because I know that uh, they would need to be claimed on like financial aid applications. So I'm wondering if it's better to hold them in my name until they actually are about to use it for uh, education and then transfer it over to their name when, uh, when the time comes. Hopefully we can uh, hear your thoughts on the show. Thank you. Oh, well, this is more of a FAFSA question. And frankly, I, I don't know. Do you know this, Luke? Yeah. I, so I, as recently as last year, if a parent owns a 529 plan, for FAFSA, it's Look assessed at a maximum rate of about five and a half percent, five point six four percent, versus okay. when a child, when it's under their name, it can be up to twenty percent in the uh, FAFSA formula. So, so it makes sense. At least from a, yeah, from a pure federal student aid impact perspective, you do benefit from having it in the parent's name versus the child's name. Okay, there you go. That makes sense. Well, lastly, let's talk a little bit about the SOM rule. And there are a lot of recession indicators, but there's one indicator that is accurately called every recession since 1960. And this is coming from Claudia SOM. She is a Federal Reserve economist. And she suggested an indicator that was very simple. It looks at the three-month moving average of U.S. unemployment rate and when, it, when this moving average rises 0.5% above or more the previous 12-month low, the previous 12-month low, it signals the beginning of a recession. So, Luke, what's the three-month moving average of the unemployment rates? 3.73. And the 12-month low is 3.4. Okay, 3.4. So, it hasn't triggered quite yet. Um, and it's, this is actually tracked by the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. So this is not something that just the average person looks at. The the uh, Fed is, is looking at this as well. And this has flashed a signal in every recession since 1960. So should we just follow this? Well, I think the difficulty is if you're looking for an indicator before something happens or as something is going into it, that's incredibly difficult. So although this does trigger, has triggered during every recession that is included in the data set, I believe that it's not always 
triggered as a precursor as you're going in. So it has missed the beginning of it. So does this tell you if you're in a recession? It has. Can it be a reliable predictor before it happens or as it's starting to happen? Not exactly sure that's the case. Yeah. But I think I think the general rule or the general plan that you should have is to in times of where you believe there is going to be economic stress, plan well ahead and prepare your portfolio for a recession, something that I believe we've done a a webinar on. Yeah. Um, so that 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 can be be helpful for any investor, regardless of when it happens. If if this can tell you it's it's today, tomorrow, or next week. Yeah, the indicator usually flashes a few months after the start of a recession. Sometimes it has flashed before the actual recession happens. Remember, the National Bureau of Economic Research—they're the ones that declare as we were in a recession. But that usually doesn't happen until after the recession either. Right. Usually in retrospect, they say, oh, yeah, the recession started nine months ago and it recently ended or we're in it now or whatever. Right. Um, so there is no 100 percent reliable indicator. But this is pretty good, at least saying at the very minimum, we're in a recession or not. And uh, a lot of people want to argue we're in one now. And it's pretty clear based on a lot of indicators, including the SOM rule, that we're not quite there, even if the economy is generally mildly weakened. Now, I'm Justin Klein, along with Luke Guerrero. This completes another Invest Talk program. We thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART. 